Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, where we finally give up the numbering system um, for now a topic system of episode. Uh, or we could just get weird and make it like a Roman numeral system with maybe like dot .a, dot .b, dot .z, .z or something like that. Just go full print on it. Nonetheless, uh, this is part one of a series on nationalisms plural mm-hmm. uh both methodological and otherwise although i don't know today originally we were going to talk about methodological nationalism and i realized like well fuck we have to talk about what nationalism is and like the national question and all the bizarre ass ways that this has tied marxism and anarchism into a goddamn knot for mm. um most of his history, I, I think these these are the questions, interestingly, that Marx and Engels themselves are the least consistent on, and the ones that we actually have the most activism on. And we're, I think I want to, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about methodological nationalism beyond just nationalism to court is that some of this is methodological. Um, but some of this is actually ideological. Like there is an ideological component of nationalism post second international Mm. that we kind of have to deal with because it's kind of similar to the idea about capital that there's a paradox in the dialectical movement, according to the way Marxists understood this from the second international forward in that developing capital under certain aegises is actually good because it um, develops uh, productive capacity. But there's a counter tendency, according to classical Marxists, of the tendency of the right of profit to fall that get bound up in each other. And one of the things that I've talked to people about that ties into this actually directly is Bukharin's theory of imperialism and mm. Lenin's subsequent development and encapsulation. I mean, he, he did, there's differences between Lenin and Bukharin, but theory of imperialism is actually tied up in trying to answer the question of these two opposing tendencies, which is the tendency of capital development and capital monopolization, which creates the preconditions for a lot of socialism, according to Engels and, uh, and socialism, utopian and scientific. Um, but there, the tendency of the rate of the fall, uh, rate of profits fall either in crisis theory or immiseration theory, depending on what period of Marx you're reading, um, which is a completely different tendency. The, the theory of imperialism, and one thing I'm going to say as we talk about this, because the reasons why I want to do nationalism is I want to talk about imperialism and, and there's a bunch of elephants in the room when we talk about this. Yeah, But I tend to agree with Stefan Hamill of the Measures Taken podcast that most people actually have contradictory theories of imperialism and contradictory theories of nationhood mm-hmm. that they are not realizing they are going back and forth between. And so it actually washes out into just a moralizing framework. Um, and I'm going to say this by saying also... Like when the Council Communist in the Netherlands actually supported the Indonesian fight against European colonialism, despite their opposition to national liberation. Um, there are times where you have to support 
movements when you do not support the groups leading them and do not mm. want to be seen as being part of the groups leading them. Um, this gets us into the sticky situation on uh, late on November 5th in 2023 of how topical we want this conversation to get. It sounds like today uh, we're going to start off pretty theoretical um, and historical too, because the nation I think is not something, and I know you agree with this, that we can naturalize or certainly mm -hmm. I think as a lot of bourgeois theory would have us um, eternalize um, the, the nation state such as it is, but also the different nationalisms, as you say, that exist now, but also have existed historically and well as well. And what has been the role of the nation state, not just in bounding a national community of capital and labor, but also, of course, to um, positing its own overcoming. Because one of the things that I think often get lost in um, the imperialism and the nationalism debates and debates about national liberation is um, a, a deep historicization of that question. And uh, as I'm always saying, and I say this all the time, not to take rote things of 100 years ago and think that the same questions uh, being posed then are the questions we need to be posing now or that the conditions under which they were posed can even be analogizable to, to today in a general sense. So I want to, I'm excited for this series because I want to get past my own, I think, infantile, let's say, uh, tendency to try to ignore the imperatives of uh, the nation state, the concrete reality of the nation state, and certainly how nationalism or patriotism, whatever the case may be, um, actually is uh, concretized in political practice and social practice to the extent that we have to confront it, otherwise we can't get past it. It's not enough to simply throw up your hands and say, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. We have to look at the real historical processes behind these things and the actual divisions that exist um, by nation in a highly internationalized global capitalist economy, still, despite the 90s and globalizations positing that the nation state's importance would decline, we still have a sort of zombie nationalism that exists underneath a sort of larger, you know, um, global capitalist structure that we have to confront. Well, there's a couple of people that are going to be in the background of today's discussion. So I'm going to just drop these names out for, for people before we get to the uh, Patel Ullman article, which I think is a good kind of basic introduction to the problem. Um, we're also eventually going to have to cover the debates of the national question and the beginnings of the second and third international, which is the debates between Otto Bauer, Anton Panikok, um, uh, Joseph Stalin uh, and Lenin and uh, Stalin and Lenin's positions are actually slightly different from each other's. Hmm. Um, and we're going to have to delimit what we mean by nation, because when we talk about nationalism, we can talk about Chinese, Russian and. Um, and American nationalisms, and this is going to be one of the questions of the room is what do we mean by nationalism in these contexts, um, because China, Russia, the United States. Um, they aren't nations in the sense historically meant by Marxists. Um, they have attempted to cobble out nations and in doing so have had to rely on other theories um, to do that. But that means we're going to have to kind of get into what nations are 
um, who, where do we think the First Nations really developed, etc. Um, and that's going to take a lot. And I think when we sort of hash this out, we're going to have to deal with a couple a couple of different things. But one of the things that's in the back of my mind is uh, Benjamin Studebaker's, whose positive politics I don't agree with, but whose negative critiques of, say, liberal national democracies and leftist or even rightist ability to utilize them to what they want, mm. um, I think is actually accurate. That, like, they, yeah. they're a real problem and they're a real limitation because capital really is an international force and then we're when i don't think we're going to get into this today but when we get into things like mmt social democracy and i'm going to just point out almost every one of these defaults to methodological nationalism with some vague peonage to internationalism and i'm going to vaguely call some people out because one of the things i see about the vague like like lip service to internationalism is you can take radically even almost hyper ultra left uh, violence mongering positions internationally and support the parties nationally that you're opposing internationally. Mm. And part of that is because the international politics is so removed from you that there's no real risk for taking an extreme position mm. because it has no actual effect. Right. Because right, your right. entire methodology is national anyway. Yeah. So, so um, people can double down on things and take who would who would normally take the most milk toke positions on the socialist spectrum. Um, all of a sudden, you'll see them agreeing with like, you know, Jay Sakai on something. Right, right, um, right, right, right. Because there's uh, no so, skin in the game, essentially. Right, and and no like practical politics that arises out of it, so no risk. Yeah, I mean, let's let's. Sorry, go ahead mm -hmm. and finish. Well, so that's one thing that we're gonna that's under underneath this. Another thing is uh, Harun Yanez, uh, who's a scholar of so of Soviet and post-Soviet nationalisms. Um, and Harun Yanez is entire project is the third international in particular thought that you had to cr even create nationalisms where there weren't any to develop an international consciousness. But in the context of World War II, it led to to, uh, to Stalin, um, people think that Stalin was simply a great Russian chauvinist after right before in World War II. Mm. That's actually not true. He vacillates wildly, um, uh, depending on what he thinks the international context is for the war. But he does ethnically sort, actually, according to Lenin's policy and not his own, uh, Eastern Europe in a way that nobody had achieved, including the fucking Nazis um, mm. prior. So Yalnes points out that the assumption was to get out of the like the to get out of the pre-modern empires and deal with the modern capitalist empires. And those are very clearly delineated things for for MLs in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, they needed to support national liberation movements and to support national consolidation and national uh, autonomy within the Russian Empire. Mm -hmm. Um but the idea was by creating the international space, the international itself would actually end up being 
an international governing body with the administrative apparatus tied international nationally for even practical reasons like people sharing the same language and right. broad being able to communicate right right so there was a sort of be a sort of nested uh federative sort of uh world government essentially right, right? The, the issue with that though is you have two problems one practically is that because of their position during the war and because of the, and this is even exacerbated by the sino soviet split um the soviet union is seen as having to take precedence and particularly the russian and early soviet bloc states as as having to take precedence over all other nations national interests which actually both in the stalin period and even more in the post-stalin period led to formerly common internal line parties taking really milquetoast positions domestically in mm -hmm. france and, and and chile and the CPUSA. And oh, CPA of course. Australia, yeah. like, Liquidating itself. <laughs> right. Um, because this was uh, something I think you and I have talked about before. And I've talked about a bunch on the podcast, which, of course, was like um, the general sort of subordination of uh, indigenous uh, national communist parties to uh, the foreign policy needs and dictates of the Soviet Union, which as a, a defensist position you know, of leadership from Moscow makes a lot of sense. But then opens up, of course, uh, the very real and I and in some ways true charge that, of course, um, say an American communist in the 1930s or 1940s is uh, not a freedom fighter for the American working class first, but instead a partisan of a foreign power first, right. uh, which, you know, obviously it, it, it's used in bad faith, obviously a lot, but uh, it does open you up to that critique. Well, and that was used very effectively under McCarthy's. One of the ironies is the McCarthyist move that one that the communists were being secretive, as we talked about in our last episode over the trade union stuff is actually kind of true. Right. And the other is you guys vacillate wildly based on the positions of the Soviet Union, which was also causing the great internal defections in the CPUSA and the other um it also made Maoism more popular because because during the 60s and 70s, you can adopt Maoism, maintained a Marxist-Leninist approach and even a national approach, prioritize national developmentalism. I'll get to what Yoon Harez implies about this. Um, uh, Harun Yonez implies about this. But uh, prioritize national developmentalism and national liberation but maintain a far more radical politics domestically than the common, than the formerly common internal line parties did. Um, so that made Marx and Leninist Maoism really popular in parts of the developing world where the Soviet Union wasn't as uh, prolific. So, but the irony that this leads to in the Soviet Union's case, and this is not even getting into the Sino-Soviet split's effect on this, um, is that it led to national liberation abroad not class liberation abroad being the primary focus because class liberation abroad risks breaking up any remnants of the popular front ending the detente with the west and making the cold war a hot war mm -hmm. but national liberation was a way to fight proxy wars with the west uh liberate people and seem like you're gaining wins and this looks particularly effective in the 60s and 70s but then it kind of collapses when none of these very few of these governments end up being 
uh, socialist at all. And one of the advantages of it, too, was that it was, in a real sense, uh, kicking down an open door. Because when the United States empire takes over for the British empire, uh, decolonization, of course, is the policy of the United States as well. Granted, a more like reformist and slow one. But uh, American policy planners in the ruling class wanted to get rid of the remnants of like European colonial empires as well. So the question became which of the proxy forces throughout the world. It was consensual between both sides of the Cold War that the battle over decolonialism would be the way to avoid a hot war. Which is why anti-imperialism in its kind of vulgar form and eventually it's Jay Sakaias form, which is the ultimate culmination of this. Um, becomes the primary way to view yourself as a communist but there's another irony dom well domestically into into the war zaw zone is the prioritizing of of uh the largest state in the in the in the warsaw pact and the largest state in the in the in the soviet union which is the russian state actually led to a revanchist backlash in the satellite states in Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. in in Latvia, in, in Poland, and <laughs> Poland in particular. I mean, like, yeah, Poland's um, got its own historical reasons for that and its own sort of social development. But yeah, the you know the solidarity solidarity movement there was a if people don't know a CIA funded, although at the same time organic workers labor movement against communism that was highly successful and actually helped to create the leadership that brings the capitalist restoration to Poland with the well, collapse of the USSR. One of the things uh, I'm going to say when we talk about this historical stuff, people say, oh, the CIA was behind that. And I'm like, okay, that's a lot of times true, but I said this a lot of times before. That does not mean it wasn't organic. The CIA was actually partly fucking behind Castro. I mean, the CIA was literally playing both sides of, of the Cuban Civil War. So like, uh, the, the CIA played both sides of Vietnam, frankly. Right. Um, the, the, if you think that the CIA involvement corrupts something, and ironically, right wingers are more right wing conspiracy theorists are more consistent on this. They'll be like, mm. well, the CIA's been behind everything. Um, <laughs> and something that's indistinguishable from much of the left these days. Right. Well, but the, but the left, it, it, they don't mention Vietnam. They don't mention Cuba because it, it, it complicates their simple, like, Oh, the CIA touched it. It must be inorganic. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, we're still to, like arguing online about abstract impressionism in the CIA. Right. Like these are, this is like a zombie sort of politics that will, that never dies much as the politics of the cold war has become a uh, zombie politics, which will not die. I promise on my end, <clears throat> this is going to be the last throat clearing, literally and figuratively. But I want to just say to the people as we start this new project that I think the impetus for this was a few sessions ago, you and I were speaking afterwards about things that came up and where we wanted to go. And we wanted to touch on the, the, the right nationalism, right economic nationalism question, because we both got the sense going all the way back to our Specters of Bernie episode that started this whole thing off that the sort of left populist, so democratic socialist economic nationalism of Bernie Sanders uh, opens up the floodgates for right-wing populist forces in this country and as we see across uh, the Western world, Europe especially, uh, to use that same rhetoric, the same platform, but much more effectively because they're not riven by the same. They're riven by their own contradictions, but not by the same ones 
that like a social democratic or a democratic social socialism poses for the question of the nation, the question of the of the nationally bounded economic unit, the question of say immigration, the questions of tariffs, of trade policy, uh, of tax policy, and everything like that. So what? It's no surprise, and I, I like Sorab Amari as a person, but it's no surprise that he coming from the right, the left and then the right, is able to kind of fit into that lane of this nationalist economic um, populism through a traditional Catholic perspective, because this economic nationalism is something that you can find in Catholicism going all the way back to the 19th century. And there's all sorts of like right-wing quasi-socialisms and right-wing economic nationalisms that really we shouldn't be trying to compete with because in a sense they're always going to be able to do it better and it doesn't seem as though and i know because you've done so much work on mmt that it's either effective economically uh in the medium term or effective politically for us to be arguing these things ourselves so yes and that brings me to the well i'm going to finish off my thing about uh Yonez. yes um, please what Yonez indicates out is what you never dialectically get to the inversion. So the inversion is first, the empires of the late feudal period, early modern period fade away. Um, the nation states emerge as their immunitive uh, thing in the, in the bourgeois world. Then the socialists try to accelerate that to create the international government because of the contradictions of the, of the Soviet Union. And particularly this gets accelerated after the Sino Soviet split. You have creating revanchist right-wing um nationalism in eastern europe ukraine is not the only one i mean mm. arguably russia itself is one of them now um and it's weird because there's a way in which e from romania east until you hit the uh, asia it does feel like there's a there's a revanchism in western um in western european development of nationalism but it's still basically in a post international context it doesn't have the same like appeal but the post-soviet nationalisms feel like they're from the beginning of the 20th century yes like and and what happened is ironically what the soviet union ends up doing is developing the apparatus for these revanchist nationalisms but then putting them on pause because the soviet um but the moment there's a break at all any kind of break they come out roaring yes um and it's really hard to put down given the rhetoric you're using abroad about national liberation and all the yes. national movements in the developing world. So it becomes a primary, you know, kind of contradictory thing. And, and that's not even adding to the fact that Mao and, and Mao's uh, picking up of early Chinese Communist Party's proletarian national thesis. And when I say it developed concurrently in two places, it developed in Mussolini's fascism. Hmm. And in one half of the founding members of the Chinese Communist Party before Mao was even in it. Mm. So Mao's not the originator here. Um, and he doesn't use this language, but it's... The it's proletarian nation is the language, right? Right. Yeah. But he does use the national unit for the justify the, like, the unity of the four classes to focus on, well, there's good capitalists and bad capitalists because we need to develop productive forces. So nationalist capitalists are actually good international capitalist a comprador right uh etc you build your block of four, four classes so what what malism does is even 
And because it also sees anti-imperialism as a primary contradiction, I don't think people really know what that's saying. You'll hear that a lot from commentators talking about the primary contradiction. So go ahead and explain. All, all uh, communists are anti-imperialists. I mean, even the leftiest of left comms who generally oppose national liberation tote court in all instances are technically anti-imperialist. No. Um, the the distinction with primary contradiction is that they actually see capitalism is not causing imperialism, but the other way around. That is what is, is implied by flipping the con the quote contradictions and weighing them. Uh, I'm smiling because I just I, we just did our episode on Sakai. And that's mm -hmm. literally what he calls capitalism. He calls it the settler economy, the imposition of the Euro America settler economy upon like the life ways of the oppressed nations. Right. What, what Sakai and this the late form of MLM in America does is erase the distinction to totally. Um, they just go, well, you know, it's not even a primary and secondary contradiction. There's only one contradiction, which is that of these nations. Also, we're not defining nations. Nations means racial groups sometimes, and then other times it means other things. It's basically yeah. whatever we think is convenient. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't, when I say that, I'm not saying that Jay Sakai was actually cynical about this. I've read enough of his later, you know, speeches and stuff to think he wasn't. Um, it's just like, for example, referring to the indigenous, like all the people of color in one nation doesn't actually make sense. Mm -hmm. Like they're not one United Nation and never would be. And that's not, and it's not even like, oh, well, well you would have had a black belt nation and an indigenous nation. There was not a unified indigenous nation. There's not a unified Asian nation. Um, the, the, in fact, in those cases, there's not even consistent national apparatuses because these people don't even necessarily speak the same language. Right. Which, which, this just imposed upon race. So we're going to have to kind of um, break that down to see the problems. But that's my, yeah. that's the UNES thing. Now let's jump to the last. I, I need to read the UNES thing. So maybe for the next, uh, is it a book or an article? It's a big actually? book and it's, it's, oh, okay. uh, it's, it's national identities and Soviet historiography, the rise of nations. Um, uh, it, so it sounds absolutely necessary to read. So maybe two sessions from now, since I'm back to work, building a big foundation uh, um, on the beach. But uh, I wanted to say real quick, like um, I'm sure some of our um, Marxist unity group friends who have written various polemics would um, think this question is infantile or stupid, but I think it's an important one. Um, if we take like a, um, a postonian view even like a um a soft postonian view about uh the development of global capitalism along and, and modernization alongside the development of soviet political economy soviet nation building and that whole entire experiment which lasts many decades uh and we maybe posit as he does that there is some sort of like inner connection between those two that like there is this sort of uh, drive for capital's accumulation and self-expansion um, that can that's actually deeper than the surface forms that society takes and that in a sense communism soviet communism was necessary for or the form that it took was necessary for actually the expansion of capitalism as a as a world system right we can ask another question about the nation state and one that is problematized by the history derek you just gave about um, the Soviet nationalities policy and then the breakup of the Soviet Union out of 
this sort of um, nation building project that then blows up in the in the Soviet Union's face, as it were. Right. Which is uh, is the nation state as a historically specific form, uh, which we know, you know, it arises in the late 18th and then into the 19th and 20th century as a historically distinct mode of organizing politically uh, a people. Right. What, is there something about the nation state that is inextricably tied to these twin or coeval processes of capital accumulation and development, and also what we would call, I guess, sociologists would call modernization, right? Which is to say, is is all of our um, modernization here being a code word for ethnic cleansing? Usually, there you um, go. Is is all, <laughs> is is all of is all of this question about national liberation? Is all of these attempts to like reconstitute? Uh, a national political body with a national uh, economy and a body of laws and armed men really like a backwards looking thing. Like is the, is the nation something that truly must be left behind uh, as a phase of human development or is it necessary as people still argue to like reconstitute the nation state in order to eventually become international? But the problem with that is, is what I said in the beginning, and then I'm going to bring up my other two names, but I think this is a good place to kind of uh, tie us into some of the, the problematics. The United States, Russia, China, and India really are not nations. They are not unified by a language. They're not unified by an ethnic group. They're not unified by a confessionality. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's a European term for religious confession. Um, they are not unified by race, even in any of those cases. Um, uh, the United States really relies on the development of race out of Europe to maintain something like a national project and invent a nationalism, which which really is a a racialized settlerism, but but a very particular one that's fluid. There's a reason why Jay Sakai makes, you know, as wrong as he, he is a lot of the time. And the closer he gets to modern history, this is also true, I feel, for Gerald Horn. The closer they get to bourgeois revolutions, the more wrong they are. Mm. Um, the the earlier back they get into the national consolidation projects of, that led up to bourgeois revolutions, the more correct they are. Um, and... Uh, but one of the things you see right now, I mean, we can pick on our Marxist unity friends, but uh, is that, you know, the, the reason why it's a question for Marxist unity is they believe national liberation leads to, to socialist republicanism, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, some parts of Engels, a little bit of Marx read through uh, Mike McNair and Mike McNair is coming out of a school from Quentin Skinner in the UK. Um, and Quinn Skinner's not a Marxist, and that's important. His, his his most famous book is a book called Liberty Before Liberalism, which talks about other modalities of freedom and understanding freedom in a non-liberal sense, and uh, and how that led to republicanism before republicanism got tied into liberalism. And I think that's an interesting thing to conceive of. Um, the, the but the 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 uh, elephant in the room there. It's if you're for paradigmatic states, both in the bourgeois and in the in the socialist course, if we ex if we accept the a uh, the AES hmm. uh, actually existing socialism, yep, right. Um, then your then your hub regional power states are not nation states. Uh, they, they try to act like it because nation states have a legitimacy after World War II. 
And another thing that we have to consider is the decolonization period in Africa in particular where this has really come up, all right? Um, a lot of, there's debates uh, in the African context about what decolonization meant and whether or not it was actually tied to national liberation. And the reason why was that the nation state is not an African concept at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had started this, as people know, Avarn, you're dropping a lot of names. You seem to have read a whole lot of this. This has been like one of the primary questions that I've been dealing with now for 10 years, because it's the one where Marx and Engels are, Engels has Hegelian assumptions about the importance of very specific, quote, historical peoples, and it yeah. has some weird racial assumptions. And some it. weird, cringy things about Slavs and others being remnants, social remnants and non-historical peoples. I think he does move past that later on. He does, yeah, uh, and, and Marx definitely does. But the yeah. thing is that that is a thing they believed, um, which is why they oppose, like, Slavic national liberation, but they they supported polish national liberation which and hungarian seems, yeah which to us seems wild yeah. um uh but um they were inconsistent um and it was an inconsistency going all the way back to the international the first international not the second um this is because there were left nationalists in the international and there were left nationalists who ingles fought with in 1848 you know for the consolidation of of germany but against like prussian imperial consolidation and for right. the consolidation of italy but against it being like mandated by the pope or something so right. like um and so there's nationalist in there for moment one now before people think this is just a marxist problem there are nationalists in the anarchist movement too. And so like uh, Garibaldi was closely associated with Bakunin. Mm. Um, and so this is, this plays out in weird ways in the 20th century. Uh, one of which is national syndicalism, which it and the, and part of the ultra left form of Marxism coalesce to create the leadership class that merges with a conservative group of thinkers that create fascism. There you but, go. but what we see, if you study the history of German consolidation, in the German historical school and in Prussian socialism under with people like Spengler and the national conservative movement is that tendency existed before fascist and uh, fascist and national socialism did that. This is actually something that Marx Marx was fighting against in his lifetime. When Marx is critiquing armchair socialists, he's not critiquing social Democrats. They don't exist yet. Mm -hmm. He's critiquing the German historical school and Prussian socialism. Um, and so it's something to note then that this is a problem. And this brings me to the, the third name of the people I would tell people to read is Zev Sternhell. Zev Sternhell is not really writing about the class base or the relationship to liberalism uh, of fascism. You can read Claire Matai for that, or, uh, or uh, if you want the like classical fascist stuff, you can read, uh, Paxton, uh, you know, uh, those guys. Mm -hmm. uh, Sternhell is interested in how social, the right wing of social democracy and elements of the ultra left created the leadership and intellectual class of fascist nation building. Mm -hmm. And that's something Marxists really don't like to look at because it's, it's where it's the one thing where some idiot like Jonah Gerber can go like, well, the left has always contributed to fascism. And there's a sense in which, 
in that question, it's true. And, and I know people don't like to bring this up. It is not like the DDR executed all its former Nazis. Some of them became people who integrated into the system. And in the social democratic countries in like Sweden, a lot of former fascists got integrated in. Um, So it's, it is not just the Western capitalist folks. I know you don't like to hear that. But mm. it, it it was everybody reincorporating these people and where they right. didn't they killed the worst ones. But like now, what is different between USSR to DDR and the United States? The United States would like praise these people. The DDR yeah. was deeply, the DDR was deeply ashamed of this. But it, and they but would they hide did. them in a cellar somewhere and use them as like uh, intelligence for the intelligence and yeah, whereas and science like, and yeah, yeah, we'd use these guys and like name streets after them and shit. Yeah, so the Werner Braun, yeah, <laughs> von Braun Institute for uh, Applied uh, Studies. Yeah, so I think like to try to like. Uh, I don't know, uh, bullet point what you're saying. Marx and Engels in their day, you know, and they're dead by the by the end of the 19th century. Uh, they have uh, contradictory, uh, in their own lifetimes, contradictory takes on national liberation in the state. For them, that was a practical one because they're, they were actually inserting themselves and intervening in the actual mm-hmm. struggles of the time. Uh, and so they didn't, uh, they weren't able in their lifetimes to put down fast and hard definitions or analyses of the nation state as through Europe, uh, the nation state is coming into being essentially as not just like a side project, but instead as like the uh, as a coeval process alongside capitalist development. So therefore, that leaves us then if we're Marxist or Anglesist or whatever, with a bit of a vacuum, we have to pick up. Uh, with Lenin, or you have to pick up with Stalin, or you have to pick up with yeah. now in order to understand um, the nation state practically through the 20th century and into today. I guess um, let's let's uh, before I get into some of the theories of nationalism because we're gonna have to do that too, um, and and maybe we do that when we pivot towards the the back end of the show. Sorry, uh, listeners, that we're gonna define it on the paywall end, but. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's- that's good marketing man i'm going to give you a preview <laughs> of that we're probably not going to come up to one easy answer on what it even is um one of the things that we have to look at though is during the time period of all these crises we're describing all right um but before the what harun yarnez was describing there is the great debates about how we deal with national liberation in the communist movements that existed both in and post the second international and the first one was the Otto Bauer problem. Otto Bauer came up with the with the uh, national policy. It was based on cultural nationalism. So just not nationalism as a as a administrative unit, but recognizing that proletarians have their own traditions of confessionality, language, etc. Very appropriate for somebody in the in Austria, right? The, mm-hmm. Coming up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I was reading Rise and Fall of the Third Reich again just mm-hmm. randomly recently. And it occurred to me that uh Hitler couldn't have been German. He had to be Austrian. Or that has to say, like, there was something about the multicultural, most um, multi-ethnic empire of the Austro-Hungarians that he could raise cultural and ethnic and racial uh, importance up to the level that it was as the Austro-Hungarian empire through his lifetime is collapsing under the weight of this drive to to form nation states. I mean, that's not, that's not, we don't just see that I mean, like even in the liberal case, take someone like Benito Juarez in Mexico. It's the mm-hmm. first, the first and only indigenous pres- president of Mexico. He's also 
the liberalizer and the liberal nation builder in in the Mexican quote empire. Like mm -hmm. that's his that's what he does. Um, uh, to the great detriment of the community he came out of. Um, this is almost like it's almost it's weirdly almost impossible for some of the best people to do this to be from the ethnic group they're consolidating, which is what right. which is a weird irony. Um, so to, to get though here is you have Otto Bauer, and that makes sense. He comes out of the Austrians, he's part of Austrian Marxism. Austrian Marxism, uh, a for people who don't know, I'm not I don't consider myself an Austrian Marxist, but it's near and dear to my heart, um, because they they refuse to either buy into a popular front or stay into third period separatism uh, in the face of fascism and capitalist retrenchment. Um, and so uh, I take them pretty seriously. So mm -hmm. Austria Marxist, Otto Bauer's question, but Otto Bauer's question did lead to a problem. It's the same problem people talk about with identity politics today. They didn't use that language, mm. but uh some of the within the Austrian Empire, some of these national groupings that were supposed to consolidate and work together in a state undermined each other and actually didn't have solidarity and workplace ashes and stuff because you'd have like the Jewish section not cooperating with the Hungarian section, or mm. you know. Um, so then you had Stalin who basically took the line you have a language, have you had a historical claim to governance? And can you maintain a government apparatus, meaning do you have like a consistency? It's actually basically the liberal definition, too. Hmm. Um, and he argues that's what it should be off of, but that there should be certain subordinations. Lenin actually takes uh, subordinations to, to communist policy. Lenin takes a stronger line on national autonomy than Stalin does. Hmm. Meanwhile, Luxembourg... And Panacook and Lenin just, if you read uh, Lenin's engagements with them, Lenin, uh, one of the funniest things is if you read like State Revolution, uh, Lenin agrees with Panacook on the nature of the state and that communism shouldn't really rely on it too much and they should mm. eventually get rid of it. But he he, he dismisses Panacook's uh, concerns about nationalism because he's like, well, they're from too small a petty nation, so it's not important. Mm. Uh, that's why they don't see the national question as important because mm. they're from these tiny nations that are not viable as their remnants right. yeah they're social remnants but the panacook position is like workers should workers councils in their soviets of whatever region they're in should operate themselves and there should be no national uh, no national policies at all mm. um and that national liberation confuses the issue what makes this debate really painful and hard to deal with is actually 1914 because this is mm -hmm. th these debates are happening both before and after it. In 1914s, when you start seeing uh, a lot of these national communist parties support their state and our national uh, well socialist parties in in nation states. Let me say that before I say national socialist. <laughs> um, socialist, par <laughs> uh, socialist parties in nation states backing their states. Um, against the interest of the international proletariat and the Zimmerwald left. And what's in revolutionary defeatism is the answer to that. But one of the weird things about that policy is it seems to contradict Lenin's insistence on national autonomy. It doesn't actually, but like if you're just superficially looking at it. Um, and today it leads to all kinds of problems because people will reread uh, uh, revolutionary defeatism onto like inter-imperial conflicts and Lenin's very clear mm. that you're not picking an imperial side in an inter-imperial conflict even if that side is yours mm. 
are against yours. Like you're not hoping that the British win. You're hoping mm. that basically everybody loses. And ironically, so the proletariat can win. <laughs> right. Ironically, the particular situations of World War One is the only time in history I can think of something like that actually happening, where like the Russians lose, but then so do the Germans. Mm -hmm. um, and both face a proletarian revolution mm -hmm. with vastly different consequences. Yeah, and vastly different outcomes. So this gets us through the way communists have understood this question. And I know we kind of went through it in a weird way because I talked about the thinkers and not the time period. But there we go. Um, but this brings us to, like, what do socialists say nationalism is? And then what's the, what's the problem in the decolonized world? And as I mentioned, in Africa... There was a movement to reject the nation state tote court because like that we don't have that. We've never been right. confessional polities because the paradigmatic nations for the nation state as we understand it, France and England, mm -hmm. they consolidate first, they develop national governments first, um, out of what are multi-ethnic singular confessions. Their ability to do that is partially because the, the religious wars of the 13th and 14th century separate them into clear ethnic groups. And then there's an attempt to rationalize the states and, ra and quote, rationalize the language, which by modern terms would be basically ethnic cleansing. So you can impose a singular, right. a singular language on England and on France. There's an incredible essay and actually uh, an incredible map from uh, Pierre Bourdieu that I, I read an article years and years ago about uh, the creation of the French language. And French, of course, is Parisian. And so as this centralization process, as this nation building, you can't even say nation, as this imperial process takes place that forms the boundaries of what we now know as the French state under the ancient regime, you see uh, Parisian... French essentially spread and overtake uh, uh, Occitan and uh, Breton and, and all the others because the creation of a coherent linguistic and cultural and ethnic uh, bounded nation state is necessarily ethnic cleansing, or as some people would say today, genocide, right? It is the destruction of the cultural patrimony of a people and the replacement of that with a dominant mode. So, you know, this is this is at the core, really, of what, as you say, we understand as the sort of horror nation states. You know, of course, right. too, um, the French Revolution um, kills the ancient regime. And so we understand a sort of Republican nationalism, whereas Britain uh, tries and fails to overthrow its ancient regime and still has an ancient regime to this day, although reformed. Right. And so you have a sort of already there you have a propulsive sort of republican nationalism of the french versus like um a, a reactionary sort of um nationalism of the of the of the british that's able to retain a lot of the older forms especially the aristocracy and class forms of that sort but also lay claim to the same mantle of the modern uh centralized nation state one of the ironies of this, we have to like really talk, we have to insert, we're skipping something between the consolidation of the French and English states and in, in the nation state as the preferred uh, way of organizing um, political uh, administration in Europe is the Treaty of Westphalia ending the, the Thirty Years' War. Mm -hmm. 
that's what actually establishes a concept of something like international relations and sovereignty national sovereignty national sovereignty as opposed to confessional sovereignty in christendom now what really confuses this and when we get into the settler states this is why this gets complicated is that at the same time and the reasons for this are multifarious there have been going all the way back to the roman empire there have been notions like race bubbling up but they never really caught Mm. right uh when when like for example in the fifth century um there was problems in roman administration you start hearing about black people ironically they're not talking about africans they're actually talking about indians Mm. um uh, subcontinent indians so people who don't think i'm just using outmoded language um uh and and also when the when during like periods of hellenistic uh turmoil before the establishment of the great hellenistic empires under the macedonians um there was also something like race developing there with the with the brown peoples the quote white peoples who were the greeks although we would not consider them right today they're more mediterranean Mediterranean. levantine um remember guys uh the reason why we think of greece and rome as white people is actually a project of the 19th century it's Mm. not like most of rome was in africa and like, getting back to the great like question of where are people's homelands you have mm-hmm. a whole historical school like the annal school um in mm-hmm. france which i was very influenced by it's kind of how i got to brudel and then how i got to Arrighi in my thinking which attempted in the mid 20th century not from a communist perspective but from an interesting historical analysis perspective the communist perspective turns the annal school into world systems theory yes it does but before that uh, they did innovations on history, which is to look at, say, the Mediterranean Ocean as like an entire economic cultural zone. And you can still to this day, of course, like track the movements of, say, the Phoenicians or the Sea Peoples, you know, um, mm-hmm. back across the Mediterranean, not just in the genomes, you know, with 23andMe, right, but also with various life ways and, and material culture, right, that really gives lie to it. It, it, it brings to me this like, this tendency I always have to understand the nation state as not just a project, but also freezing like the the movements and developments of people in space and time and kind of enclosing them and locking beh- them behind the gates of the border, which is one of the things that the nation state does, which is unique, really, like uh, across at least European history. Even the Roman Empire, of course, had more porous borders and movements and migrations of population than you know the modern nation state does today so that's a little sidebar but you know taking things out of this gets to our methodological nationalism thing is that like sociology and social science itself is a nation building project in a sense right the social sciences uh, anthropology right they arise to like in anthropology to designate an other or to get at some essential truth of of what human beings are and what what they have been and what they are. Sociology, of course, is about the management of social life and social classes, the understanding of that, and then the administering by state or quasi-state agencies of a very of a nationally bounded population. Uh, and then, of course, too, you have everything that follows from that with the 20th century's um, marriage of those two things in what we call social policy these days. So even our understanding of how the world, say the the North America works, is bounded within this conception of an American society, bounded within, contained within this political and economic unit that we call America. Uh, And 
again, gets more and more problematic the more globalized things get. So the reason why I bring up race here is because the nation and race are going to be confused. Um, Race is not was not originally really a demarker of a nation. But in Europe in the 18th and 19th century, race and nation are interchangeable words. Um, They are not always so by the time you get the Gorbino and in in France who really kind of convince oh they are race scientists yeah Yeah. but that changes but but that's why races were considered part of linguistic groups which are also the, the the grounds of nationalism now one of the confusing things the reason why this is important for us in America is race is how we paper over the fact we were not a nation state Right, yeah, we have to get into the difference between the United States as a nation and then di- and other different nations. But it's, it's important conf- for people to note. It's confused, and the reason why I say, like, yes, there's a long history of the concept of race kind of almost bubbling up from, like, the 3rd century to, like, the 14th century. But uh, three things happen uh, that tie it together, and the reason why this is a big problem in Europe is obvious. Um, one... Christendom falls to just Europe. So the multi-skin color mm. Christendom is ended by by the sacking of Byzantium. Um, Which is why the cauldron of race and uh, racial sentiment can really take root and arise during the Reconquista when it become, right. when it goes from an interconfessional struggle and really a political land-based struggle into pure sangre, right? Pure blood and the elimination right. of the of the dark threat of the Moros. Right. Well, then you have the expulsion from Spain, and then you have the transatlantic slave trade, which all happen roughly at the same time. Yeah. And why I bring that out is that also happens within a hundred years of nations becoming not just England and France. Um, so now you see why these concepts are confused. Um, and I think that's really important for leftists to see. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring up, though, the the Britain and France, as you pointed out, and as Marx and Engels deserve, part of why they didn't throw nationalism out mm. is the revolutions that they saw were national bourgeois revolutions against feudal imperial states. Um, now the interesting thing is those feudal imperial states were effectively nation states anyway, because they had one confession and one language, but, but that's why they saw it as the unit of import, right? Um, it's also in Hegel, but if you're just observing, well, where are the revolutions at? Well, they're where the nations are. Are there where Europeans have settled in, in, uh, broke with Europe? That's where the revolutions are. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, we have to kind of follow this same path um and that brings us then to the to the central question and we've kind of gone backwards and forwards simultaneously in this but that's why nationalism is at the root of communism even though so is overcoming it Mm. that's also seen as something that has to be done from moment one we start using you know, we start talking about both national liberation and overcoming nationalism as early as 1848 before communism's really unarticulated doctrine. Mm-hmm. Like more so than just it, a utopian it, sentiment or a Christian right, sentiment. Right, exactly. So like it is there from moment one, but it's also something that we have a contradictory position on. Now, 
let's go ahead and put a pin in it. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who want to, uh, who are listening to this on um, Sean's show, the Antifada, uh, you now have to go behind the paywall at either yeah. of our podcasts to hear the rest of this. For my people, you only get this behind the pay- paywall anyway, so you're yeah. already listening to the whole thing. You're page. already <laughs> there. <laughs> Patreon.com slash the Antifada. If you, do, if you, like, I am wearing an excellent onesie today with mm. bears and flannel because I'm a schlub and I podcasted twice today and barely left the house except to walk the dog. So if you want to see me in all my glory and if you want to see Varn in all his glory, become a patron of Varn Vlog and you can even watch this on video, which is pretty cool. So that's our great promotion. And for once, Varn was the one that started the promotion. So with that said, we'll see you guys on the other side unless you're already there. Yeah.